Do we live in a culture of surveillance today? And if so, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And what should we do about it? Hi, this is Tom Field, Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm discussing the culture of surveillance today with Professor William Staples of the University of Kansas, who is the author of the book Everyday Surveillance. Professor Staples, thanks so much for joining me today. Sure, no problem, Tom. To start with, take a minute and tell us a bit about yourself and your research, please. Yeah, I've been at the University of Kansas for 24 years, and I've been studying surveillance for about 20 of those. The uh, the book is actually a second edition of a book by the same title that I published in uh, 2000. I just founded the Surveillance Studies Research Center here at the University of Kansas. You know, my research has been focused uh, uh, mainly on this idea that I kind of came up with in the late 90s, I got interested in the notion of surveillance, and I kind of looked around, and it was, you know, Big Brother kind of wasn't around much, uh, and, and what I was seeing was much more of these um, uh, simpler, little tiny ways in which people are monitored, and it's become kind of my contribution, if you will, to a, an interdisciplinary field called um, surveillance studies. One of the things that struck me in learning about your research is that the recent revelations about NSA surveillance really come as no surprise to you. Why is that? Well, I think for anybody who's been kind of uh, keeping track of what's been happening um, uh, in surveillance, both um, you know national and, and otherwise, we knew that post-9-11 that there was going to be intensive surveillance started. Um, I mean, EPIC, uh, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, sued the NSA for similar kind of programs as early as 1999. And there was much debate, and, and uh, if you look at newspaper coverage in about 2005, there was lots of coverage of some of these programs. Um, I, I think the Snowden leaks you know, revealed much more detail than uh, most people uh, knew about. But in terms of the uh, response to it, I mean, the public clearly wasn't following what was going on, and, and I think uh, all the hand-wringing about, uh, in Congress about it is kind of silly because they, they've authorized it multiple times. They rely on the information it comes from, and the president relies on it every single morning. Apparently, something like 50% of his uh, briefings uh, are data that come from the uh, NSA. So at the start of this conversation, I used the term culture of surveillance. Would you define for us what you mean when you refer to the U.S. as cultivating this culture of surveillance? The culture of surveillance, uh, the term I uh, started using a number of years ago, refers to a kind of uh, culture as a way of life. Uh, uh, the culture is something that's sort of not all that well defined in terms of, but it's just the way we live. And it's, uh, I, I would argue that our culture of surveillance is founded on fear and suspicion, but this is, you know, post 9-11, that's important in terms of the issue of uh, terrorism and other things. But I think it, it goes all the way down to uh, the level of, you know, people's houses, um, being suspicious of their kids, uh, drugs, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like we've been turning to all the means at our disposal to thwart what we perceive as kind of rampant deviance, crime, and problematic behavior. And it's not that those things aren't real, it's the extent to which they are. And I, I see our cultural surveillance as partly a, a kind of overreaction 
because we just because we have the means, it seems like we we do it. So um, and and it usually covers you know it's widespread. It it, uh, it it doesn't just target the folks that um, are causing sort of problems. It's everybody gets drug tested. Everybody gets treated in certain ways and rather than uh, narrowly. In your book, Everyday Surveillance, you refer to the concept of tiny brothers. What are they exactly, and do they add up to the impact of a single big brother? Yeah, you know, tiny brothers was uh, another phrase that I tried to capture. When I wrote the book originally, it was pre-9-11, and again, like I said earlier, uh, you know, kind of big brother wasn't really uh, around very much. I mean, we knew that there was stuff going on, but it wasn't, you know, in the consciousness, and it was kind of hard to understand what Big Brother really meant. But as I said, I, I started looking around our sort of daily lives in, in institutions and organizations like workplaces, schools, and communities, and I was seeing more and more of uh, these usually sort of uh, technological ways of keeping track of people. Uh, another word I use, sometimes phrase I use sometimes is data sponges. You know, they're... They're everything from electronic card keys uh, that you know you open doors with to toll booth recorders. Uh, there are, if you think about your daily life, uh, and I did this, uh, I've done this several times with classes that I teach. I have students figure out what kind of uh, tiny brothers did they encounter on a daily basis, and it's extraordinary. Uh, I had students go the other day through our student union, and they found 28 different data sponges, if you will, in the in the student union. Uh, everything from surveillance cameras to ATMs with cameras and scanners and their even their um, student cards uh, or RFID chips that uh, uh, can store all kinds of information. To say nothing about the cell phones that they carry around and um, and the like. So if, if you add it up it's just there's just an enormous amount of this kind of data sponging and storing all those kinds of information about us. And it's not, you know, the, the Tiny Brothers, because they're small, but it's also that they're not public necessarily, public as in uh, Big Brother. They're uh, by and large private uh, companies and other kinds of organizations that are collecting all this information about us. So I hear what you're describing here, and it strikes me that many of these instances of Tiny Brothers are implemented for security, for authentication, so I have to ask you, are tiny brothers necessarily a bad thing? No, not, not at all. They're, in, in many instances, reasonable responses to certain kinds of problems. But, again, I think there's a, there's a tendency to uh, uh, overreact to uh, various things. And we don't generally build in as many protections of people as we could. We sort of uh, let these things kind of go rampant, and the question is, is that the society we want to live in? That's the kind of thing that I'm trying to raise questions about. As you say, this is an area that you've researched now for over 20 years. How do you find that this U.S. culture of surveillance is unique in the world? And if so, what are the potential ramifications well, I mean, the U.S. seems to be one of the leaders in this kind of attitude. Again, it's a culture that's generated by fear and that's uh, kind of spread by the media and the kind of media that we have today that everyone is on edge because they think that, you know, they're going to be the next uh, victim of something, even though it might be an incredibly rare thing. 
And so my colleagues around the world say that, that you know, there's definitely uh, surveillance uh, mentalities and, and things going on. I mean, look at the United Kingdom. Uh, in the UK, there's a you know, surveillance camera for every 32 people. Uh, but at the same time, the European Union has a data protection law that seems to at least try to go after some of this uh, or tamp down some of the extremes of uh, what we know is the potential abuse of large data collection efforts. And so, I, I mean, I think we <laughs> we are a leader uh, in, in, in all kinds of ways, and I think we've tended to spread our culture of surveillance uh, to the world, and, and sometimes directly by providing resources and others to, to countries to build security networks and those kinds of things. One of the things that we see in this age of social media, mobile ubiquity, is that we're cultivating a generation that doesn't have a lot of concern about data security and privacy. Do you find that we're cultivating a generation that is going to simply expect and comply with surveillance? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's some blowback now from students that are a little bit savvier, and they're trying to, at least from some of them that I hear, they're, they're uh, reacting to this and, and shutting down their Facebook pages and, and that accounts and that kind of thing. But I think my experience over the last 10 or 15 years talking to different groups is that, is that students have had this, um, this acceptance attitude. I, I think they've grown up in a culture of surveillance, and when you do that, you you expect it. You take it for granted that it's going to be there. But at the same time, um, another aspect of our culture of surveillance is the way that we contribute to it. Uh, it's, again, it's not a big brother thing. It's it's that we're part and parcel of it, um, and and we feed the machines our our information routinely. Uh, Americans carry on about um, protection of privacy, yet. We're always handing it away, it seems. And I think young people have this tendency. Um, one of the ways I thought about it for a long time was, and I think this is true, that, that they see themselves, um, particularly in the realm of surveillance, as in marketing and other kinds of ways that, that information is used, that they see themselves primarily as consumers in our culture and rather than sort of citizens. And when I, when I talk to groups again, generally older people, sort of over 45 or so, react from this kind of citizenly way. And I think the, the students tend to be, have this attitude like, well, if they just get at the products more efficiently, then, then that's good. And um, so I, I think there is a kind of complacency among them. I've got to ask you, Professor, how has your research into surveillance influenced your own behavior? Yeah, I mean... I'm, I'm certainly cognizant of these issues, clearly, and I do what I can to try to avoid them. But I think it's, you know, individuals can do, only do so much. And and I think if we decide, and again, it's if, and I'm not saying that this is all bad. Uh, those are what we call normative judgments about things. Uh, my goal is to understand. And, and my goal as a sociologist is not to tell people what to do, but to ask questions about various aspects of social life that most take for granted, I think, um, and, and to look for patterns of, uh, of social life. And um, I use you know, theories and other ideas to try to make sense out of it. I, I think we need, if, if you want to talk about what we do about it, I, mean, I think we need collective, large, 
scale responses, and we need to decide as a as a society is this the kind of society we want to live in, and where we're constantly assessed and judged and monitored and uh, et cetera, et cetera, every day uh, of our lives. If everybody is okay with that, then you know, fine. But maybe we need some kind of restriction on some of it. At least put some kind of check on it. As you say, you're a sociologist, so it really isn't fair of me to ask you for specific recommendations. But let me ask this: based on your research, what are some of the questions that organizations ought to be asking of themselves? So, so take a workplace, and you know you have employees, and if you treat them with constant suspicion and the idea that that they're going to steal from you or whatever. There's a lack of a kind of common goal, right? So there's a, you know, you can alienate your employees or have a hard time keeping employees because you subject them to everything from drug tests or you monitor everything they do on a computer or you have them carrying around a tablet that keeps track of every single thing that they do. You know, is that, is that real efficiency is, seems to be the value, uh, if I'm talking mainly about the workplace. Yeah, it's a competitive economy, but maybe business owners should think about what that does to, again, to their employees. So it's those kind of questions I would raise. Uh, If you look at every institution uh, in the society, um, schools are turning into virtual prisons with metal detectors and drug testing and drug sniffing dogs and, you know, you name it. Again, is is that an appropriate institution to call a school that operates in in those ways. We're talking about the newly revised book, Everyday Surveillance, by Professor William Staples. Professor, where can our audience members find copies of your book? Yeah, uh, it's published by um, uh, Roman and Littlefield, and you can go to their website and get it, or you can go, of course, to uh, various web vendors like Amazon and uh, and the like. So it's out there. There's an e-book version of it. It's uh, pretty inexpensive. Very good, Professor. Thank you so much for your time and your insight today. Thank you. Good to talk to you. The topic has been Everyday Surveillance. I've been talking with Professor William Staples, professor with the University of Kansas and author of the book, Everyday Surveillance. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.